Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. From KQED. From KQD in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. The primary battlefield in Ukraine is the physical one, of course, the one playing out on the ground. But the broader conflict is largely playing out on screens, among social networks, and in video clips circulating in group threads. The information war sways the sentiment of populations, changes the positions of leaders, and can have a real effect on the battle. So far, in a surprise, Russia's much-discussed troll army and provocateurs have been drowned out by Ukrainian social media savvy and big tech's preparation for and recoil from Russian activity. We'll talk with two experts on the new Infowar landscape about what they're seeing and what to expect in the weeks ahead. That's all next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. If you told me before Russia invaded Ukraine that the big stories in the digital terrain were that Ukraine's president had become a global icon and that Ukrainian soldiers trash-talking their counterparts, even in potentially suicidal defensive positions, would become some of the most widely shared memes in the world, I would not have believed you. Not only because it seemed unlikely that Ukrainians could mount the so far effective defense they have, but because Russian trolls, hackers, info warriors and other operators were considered top notch. They were supposed to have mastered digital propaganda and certainly Americans experienced their handiwork ourselves during the 2016 election and beyond. So like everything else this past few days, reality has surprised us and it's time to reorient ourselves to the new world. Here to help us understand the state of the information war, we're joined by Renee DeResta, a researcher at the Stanford Internet Observatory who's been tracking misinformation, disinformation, propaganda on social networks for years now. Thanks for joining us, Renee. Thanks for having me. We're also joined by Sinan Arl, a director of MIT Initiative on the Digital Economy and also author of a book on social media, The Hype Machine. Welcome, Sinan. Thanks for having me. Hi, Renee. Hey there. Uh, Renee, I want to start with you. You've been describing this concept of amplified propaganda to sort of talk about the basic state of the social Internet now. What do you mean by that? So I started talking about that actually in the context of domestic activity primarily. Um, What we have now is an environment where anyone can create and disseminate uh, propaganda or any other type of content for that matter. And so what we see a lot of is grassroots bottom-up activity in which uh, ordinary people both create and participate in making content go viral. Um, So in the context of Ukraine, for example, you know, you noted the um, astonishing popularity of this highly charismatic, extremely competent, very brave figure, the president of Ukraine. And what we see there is as the material really resonates with the audiences, the audiences participate in ensuring that that content goes wildly viral. So there's a a participatory dynamic in which audiences and creators kind of collaborate in creating the material and in amplifying the material that then reaches uh, millions or hundreds of millions of people. Yeah, participatory propaganda. Uh, It's it's kind of, it's been fascinating to, to watch it play out. But one thing that disturbs me about the present moment, Renee, is this idea that people are so ready to bite on these kind of just-so moments 
that make the Ukrainians, which most people see as their side, uh, look good. And I get why they're doing that. But I also worry that it's making it hard to kind of keep a grip on the hard truth. What do you think? It's, you know, there's... um... The idea of hard truth is interesting, right? So there, when we talk about misinformation, I feel like the conversation's been, uh, a lot of things have, have been flattened a bit. And so there's misinformation, the term refers to information that's demonstrably false. And a lot of the public conversation has been using this term misinformation when propaganda is information with an agenda, it's emotional information. It's not, it, it's got a grain of truth perhaps, but it's really never been a falsifiable thing. Rumors, another thing that we've seen a lot of in this conflict, the you know, the sort of uh, fog of war on the ground translating into this cyclone of content, uh, these stories that just break and emerge uh, over and over again from people who are tweeting from in the conflict zone. The ghost of Kiev is one such example where there's, again, this uh, this plane that was flying overhead for a bit and that was um, kind of elevated into a myth. So rumors becoming myths in which there is this element of truth. There is this plane, there is this figure, you know, Russia had not achieved air superiority. That was a remarkable fact, uh, elevating that into the realm of myths and the sort of stories that we tell, particularly in this environment where so much of propaganda is actually about um, morale. It's about uh, it's about driving people to feel activated for a cause. And so contextualizing it in this conversation of misinformation uh, really just misses the important mm. distinctions, the important use of this kind of conversations, you know, th- this kind of material, these stories that have that have emer- that have existed for centuries. Yeah. Sinan, uh, you know, your book is titled Hype Machine. And the way that Ukrainian support has really ratcheted up in the U.S. and across Europe pretty clearly seems like an example of the basic dynamics that you describe really at work. How are you making sense of, of what's happening? Well, thanks for having me. I, uh, I think that's, that's right. And it's a moment where the entire world's attention is tuned to a particular, uh, you know, geopolitical set of events, uh, a horrific invasion, a escalating refugee crisis, um, and so it's almost made for this kind of moment because everyone it's a machine that is designed uh, to capture and monetize the attention of people. And the attention of people in this moment is all trained on this event. And so the machine is extremely well positioned to distribute information, to make it, uh, to make creation frictionless, to make sharing frictionless, to make emotional displays and uh, social proof frictionless. And so it is doing that job incredibly well uh, with regard to the narratives that are taking place in Ukraine. Yeah. You know, in your book, you really open it in Ukraine with this study of the kinds of news stories that were moving around Twitter specifically. And it's really pretty stunning because the number of stories being amplified and and shared that sort of had a mix of truth and lies, right? These mixed uh, truthy, maybe we'd call it, that this is actually in the whole period that you studied is sort of the spike in those kinds of stories. Can you tell us a little bit more about that research and what you think it means? Yeah, you know, Alexis, I agreed with your opening about how you might have expected the information war to have gone given Russia's prior, quote unquote, prowess in that space in Georgia in 2008 
in Crimea in 2014. And we studied uh, that Crimean misinformation or disinformation campaign quite extensively. And I talk about it in the opening to my book. So it was part of a, a larger study that we published in Science in 2018, where we studied all of the true and false verified news stories that ever spread on Twitter from 2006 to 2017, so 10 years of data. And within that data, there was a subset of data that the fact checkers labeled uh, mixed or partially true, partially false. And when we dug into just the mixed news, the partially true, partially false news, we found one spike that was four times greater than all of the other mixed news in that decade of Twitter's recorded history. And that was during the two-month annexation of Crimea. So when we looked into the stories that were making up that spike that was four times greater than any other spike in Twitter's history at that point, uh, what we found was that the, the main stories that were driving that spike were stories that were parroting Sergei Lavrov's public remarks nearly verbatim. And they were stories that were essentially Russian propaganda that was designed to control the narrative of what was going on in Ukraine, uh, in Crimea for Crimean citizens, as well as for the international community. And it was uh, to great effect. I mean, why aren't we seeing a similar kind of push this time around? What do you, I, I know that may be a difficult question to answer. Well, I think that there's three primary reasons um, that we're not seeing the same thing this time around. The first is that there is a tremendous amount of global unity of perspective. So you saw the vote uh, at the at the UN. Um, you know the the nations that were voting for or abstaining uh, are few and far between, and they are sort of a a set of pariahs uh, of the world in essence. Um, secondly, I think that uh, President Zelensky has been incredibly effective, especially in contrast to the Russian narrative. So. Uh, you know, there was a Russian news story on state media that early on that Zelensky had fled the country. And, you know, the very simple response of posting a video selfie of himself walking through the streets of Ukraine with his uh, two videos, actually, the one where he's by himself and the one where he's with his lieutenants saying, we're here, we're defending our country, was incredibly effective to counter that narrative. But it also posed a very stark difference between this cool under pressure, uh, strident uh, leader who is in the thick of the fighting and yet being brave uh, compared to the videos of Vladimir Putin sitting behind a wooden desk in a safe office, sort of hunched over hundreds of miles away from the fighting also presents a very stark narrative. The third reason, I think, is the involvement of the platforms themselves. Mm. They have they are completely different in their approach today uh, than they had been in 2008 and 2014. I think in Crimea, in Georgia and and previously, the platforms were not as prepared to deal with Russian misinformation and propaganda. And today, at least their policies, and we can go through those specifically, uh, are much more prepared to deal with it than they were uh, in the past. Yeah, I mean, I think that's some of the most grueling stuff to read from your book back in 2014 is realizing that this information operation is occurring in Ukraine on Facebook and Facebook has no office there. And I 
probably pretty likely had few to no culturally competent Ukrainian speakers who could have even helped the executives understand what was going on. Yeah, I mean, the the story of how the Russians, for example, suppressed Ukrainian voices by having automated reports of fraud and abuse that would take down those pro-Ukrainian voices and then have those uh, bloggers banned on Facebook uh, is a very interesting example of sort of uh, tactical information warfare on the part of the Russians at the time. And uh, describing what you're saying today, Facebook has spun up a special operations center staffed with native Russian and Ukrainian speakers that are monitoring misinformation posted about the war. They're adding war, uh, warning labels to war-related images that its software detects are more than a year old and so can't be about this war. They've restricted access to content from state-affiliated Russian media outlets like RT and Sputnik and other uh, platforms are doing similar things Uh, That doesn't mean that misinformation and disinformation isn't flowing freely. A lot of it is, but there's a lot more focus and policy oriented around curtailing it and towards dealing specifically with uh, propaganda. We're talking about war in this age of participatory propaganda with Renee DiResta, Technical Research Manager at the Stanford Internet Observatory, as well as Sinan Arl director of the MIT Initiative on the Digital Economy and author of The Hype Machine. And we'd love to hear from you. The number is 866-733-6786. What stories have hit home for you? That's 866-733-6786. We'll be back with more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the information war in Ukraine right now with Renee DiResta, a researcher at the Stanford Internet Observatory, as well as Sanan Arl, director of the MIT Initiative on the Digital Economy and author of The Hype Machine. We'd love to hear from you. What images or stories have hit home for you and drawn you into this conflict? And have you thought about how to verify whether or not they're, they're true? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or you can get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram or KQED Forum, or you can email your questions and comments to forum at kqed.org. Renee, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about this concept of things being both true and possibly also propaganda as well. Um How do you, just as someone who's approaching this yourself, who's on Twitter and is watching um, all of this media move past you and move through your feed, how do you decide when you get in on sharing one of these stories? 
Oh, that's a tough question. Um, I, I only share things if I've uh, kind of gone and independently corroborated it in like three or four different places at this point. Um, I recognize, you know, I, I too was following, for example, the, um, the snake Island, um, Mm -hmm. you know, the snake Island worship story very closely. I've been, um, I've been glued to my screen for the last uh, 10 days or so now. And it's a very, very powerful story, right? And, you know, there's, you see the fog of war in there. They actually didn't know that those soldiers were still alive, right? And they had, they lost contact with them. The assumption was that they were all killed. And this became, again, um, a, an extraordinary, compelling act of bravery, personal narrative. There's audio of it. You know, mm-hmm. one thing that I think is is worth mentioning is that so much of the content that we're seeing this time around, which is very distinct from 2014, is that a lot of the, you know, the kind of flood the zone nonsense that was happening on social platforms in 2014 was news articles and text. Mm-hmm. Uh, now we have video. And the effort to fact check a video for just a, kind of an ordinary casual observer is extraordinarily difficult. You know, mm-hmm. how do you know if something's been modified? How do you know if it's been decontextualized? You know, we're seeing um, video game footage was was making the rounds for a few days. So I think this question of how do you decide what to share, it's uh, I, I think that at this moment in time, sharing something that is making a factual claim is particularly challenging, but sharing the stories that are resonating with people emotionally, that's what you're seeing go viral. Mm-hmm. And the, the question of what happens when they are later found to be um, rumors that were kind of uh, elevated into myths, I think the acknowledgement that that happened, the acknowledgement that that this story was, uh, was you know, the, the actual outcome, um, acknowledging that that dynamic happened is important even just for understanding socially how we are all participating in this in this process of trying to get information when there's just so much content swirling around and understanding what of it was true what of it did turn out to not be true and and just being uh, you know being open and transparent when the real facts begin to come out yeah yeah and it's not about being opposed to Ukraine or not thinking that the Snake Island defenders were showing bravery telling a Russian warship to go blank itself as some of you may have have seen out there but it's just more about a, a dedication to the truth insofar as we can discover it in this information landscape which is incredibly incredibly both difficult and motivated by so many uh different things uh, Renee, I'll stick with you for a little bit here too. Um, it's also struck me that American media, you know, kind of your your CNNs, but also the the papers, have kind of really started to crank out the amplification of stories of Ukrainian bravery and resistance. And obviously, that's because there are a lot of them. It's it's their country, and uh, and those stories really exist. It's also the framing for a lot of those stories seems like to me designed to move along those emotional social network circuits that you're describing. Like it's basically soft focus Olympics coverage in some ways about this war. And what role do you think those commercial partners who have these incentives to have these stories go big, what role do you think they have in sort of looking at the way that they're framing these stories? I think, again, the principles of... um journalistic integrity where the facts as they are known are made clear is uh, is is critically important for us. We want to feel that the media that we're getting our information from is telling the most accurate story possible. The 
you know, comment holding commentary aside, right? There's a lot of a lot of commentary, a lot of human interest stories that are being written as well that do tend to get a little bit more into the um, expressing what what ordinary people who are directly impacted are saying, kind of retelling their stories, bringing them to the world, giving them a voice. I think that's a also an important area for coverage. Again, I think that the acknowledgement from media, um, this is what we reported, this piece turned out not to be true, this piece, you know, later they were found to be alive, this plane didn't shoot down six people, et cetera, et cetera. You can note that, you can, you know, mm -hmm. you can be as factually accurate as possible. Um, and I think, again, it's that transparency and that making the facts clear as they are known is the role of a journalist in this time. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of my questions are are more about even just the framing less than the lead in the facts, which I, I, I mean, all the reporters who were in Ukraine, I mean, that is a very difficult and very dangerous job. And it's tons of respect to them. Let's bring in uh, Tony from the East Bay. First caller. Hi, how are you? Um hey. I, I, I got to say that uh, talking about um, the, the, the topic and what it brings to mind, um, in a previous life, I, I was in the Army and stationed in Germany. We did a lot of exercises uh, while out there with our Ukrainian counterparts. And information warfare was definitely one of those things that we trained and planned on. Hmm. And it, it goes to a comment that your uh, guest made earlier about the narratives. Um, the, the importance of our special operations forces training with our allies and our partners in Europe is, is tremendous. And it's based on a foundation of a good narrative. The, the facts, um, what, what President Zelensky has put out there is in stark contrast to what Putin's government and his equivalent of his national security planners um, is, is failing. And all of these efforts trickle down um, to the, the, the people who are putting together these products that we see on the Internet um, and in the news. And what, what it's so apparent um, to, 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 to look back at some of the things that we did with our Ukrainian counterparts where we brought planning know-how, but they bring their own flavor, their own special flavor. I, I just saw a video of um, a Ukrainian drone, um, a lot of footage taking out Russian tanks, but put mm -hmm. to music. It's actually quite a catchy tune. And it, again, in stark contrast with what the Russians are attempting to do and failing because they don't have the moral high ground into why they're involved in this to, to begin with. And again, just really cool to see the lot of work that we did over the last 10 years come to fruition as the Ukrainians um, are. They, they definitely got the edge in the information warfare here. Um, hey, Tony, give me an example. Like when you're training for information warfare, like I can imagine what training is. Uh, around you know urban warfare tactics, I can imagine what what training is on, you know, uh, on particular weapons or how to deal with you know tank tires or whatever it is. But how do you do training around? Are, were you guys practicing the kind of videos that you would make and then post? I mean, what what did it mean to to train around these kind of info ops? A lot of it is really a lot of it is really training in the planning. It's it's how to streamline the process because as you can imagine, you, you bring in a lot of creative people to the table, and uh, in, in a marketing agency or firm, it they'll turn the the idea into the the concept into an actual product, and that's just a matter of debating will this be effective or won't it, and all the political uh, things that that you know come to it. So the the training was really getting through a process that turns concept and idea into a final product and getting it out there. And the advantage 
right now, I believe, is is to the Ukrainian defenders. It, it, they're allowing uh, at the lowest level possible to get their stuff out on social media. Uh, and in some ways, it, I think on the Russian side, I think they're hampered by the fact that you know, I've got this footage from the front. I can't find any really good convincing footage that we, the Russians, are winning. And then it gets back to um, the, you know the higher headquarters trying to figure out mm. how to spin this into something positive. Um, we we focus mostly on how to streamline that and get really good content again, based on a factual and moral high ground that our cause is better, um, or or what have you. And so th- it was a lot of sometimes really boring meetings, but um, really cool brainstorming and creative sessions, um, especially. Uh, you know, learned a lot from the Ukrainians because they bring their own special flavor and their own um, moxie, if you will. You know, here, put some sunflower seeds in your pockets uh, so that they can grow when you die. That that kind of um, moxie is what, what we learned a lot from them. Yeah. Hey, thanks so much for sharing that experience. Uh, unexpected call, Tony. Thank you so much um, for that. Yeah, no problem. You know, uh, so not, uh, this kind of goes along with a piece that you wrote um, that the Ukrainians really do seem to be using social media better. Like the the advantage here really seems to be kind of like what Tony was saying is that the, the content, as awful as it sounds to say that about a war, the content is superior. Well, I mean, I think that the, the interesting thing about Tony's comment about narrative is this idea that narrative really inspires action. In this case, so you're correct. Uh, you know, President Zelensky is putting out videos that can be easily repurposed on any platform and go viral across platforms. But he's also getting on Telegram, the encrypted messaging app, to speak directly to the Russian people. And I think that the action that we're seeing is really uh, clear and stark. So first, it's motivating. The resistance by inspiring Ukrainian citizens to take up arms in defense of their country and also motivating them with social proof from others that they're not alone, they're united. Um, other people are also not surrendering. It's Second, it's encouraging foreign assistance. It's pressuring Europe, the United States, and the world to step up their efforts to end the conflict. And the action built off of narrative that we see there is also unprecedented sanctions, you know, uh, removing many Russian banks from SWIFT, EU sending troops for the first time in their history, Germany doing an about face both on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, but also, you know, on their longstanding policy of not sending arms into conflict zones. And then finally, it's the Russian citizens themselves. By speaking directly to them, it fans the flames of protest in Russia. Thousands, up somewhere upwards of 10,000 people have been arrested or soon will be that number 10,000 that uh, I have seen mobilizing the anti-war movement in Moscow and elsewhere in Russia. And so this link between the narrative and action uh, is in part because of the expert and depth, depth use of social media, but it's also in part related to what I mentioned earlier in that there is a unity uh, of perspective against this invasion uh, worldwide. We're talking about war in this age of social media with Sanan Arl, director of the MIT Initiative on the Digital Economy and author of 
the hype machine. has been studying social networks for 20 years. As well as Renee DiResta, a researcher at the Stanford Internet Observatory who's been in the trenches of all kinds of misinformation, disinformation, and, and propaganda wars for, for years as well. And we'd love to hear from you. What images or stories have hit home for you or drawn you in during the conflict? And how do you think about verifying those stories or, or understanding what role you're playing in sharing them? What don't you understand about the current information war and maybe want explained? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram or KQED Forum, or you can email your questions and comments to forum at kqed.org. I want to go to another caller, Madhu in San Jose. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you. Uh, this has been uh, concerning me a lot. Every night I watch the news, and then we also watch the late-night shows. And in most of these uh, segments, they use these stories from Ukraine as a way of uh, entertaining people. You know, it's as if like we are cheering our team in a sports event when they score a goal, uh, without underlining the fact that it, there is death and destruction. And uh, this, this I feel very bad that, uh, you know, mm-hmm. they're even saying these stories. And the second thing is, what's the use of this uh, controlling the narrative while people are, all, are already dying? Mm-hmm. Madhu, thanks so much for that comment. I have to say that I have experienced a similar kind of discomfort in watching exactly the way you described it. Like, this isn't a game. This is a war. And yet people are sharing both through the platforms and with the same language and and reaction shifts and all of these things, these images of a war, these images of people with all this weaponry and, and, and what we know is death and destruction. And Renee, I just, I, I actually don't even have a fully formed question about this. <laughs> Aside from just, I, I, it's honestly made me feel quite terrible. Like just as a, as a person to, even though, I recognize the bravery. I recognize all the things about the nature of this war. It's seeing these same the same content that's used for warriors like dunks being used to also like dunk on the Russians. And I'm just like, this, these are not equivalent. And it doesn't feel like it has the gravity and the weight of the human importance attached to it. I- well, I, I think you're right about that. I think there's a um, there's a question of also what we see on English language, Western focused social media platforms is also a little bit different than what's going on in the Telegram channels and things like that. Um, you know, uh, Sinan had mentioned um, the platforms are doing a, uh, you know, a, a fairly strong job um, moderating and managing this crisis. Uh, but interestingly, on Telegram is where you're seeing a whole lot more of the the very very unvarnished stuff, stuff that mm. that that would never stand uh, on a on a Western platform, um, mm. and that is where the kind of uh, you know the Ukrainian audiences are. That's where the Russian audiences are, and it's a very very different tone um, on those platforms. So I think that this sentiment that people on Western platforms are using React and memes and so on and so forth. Um, there is a, a bit of distance and and people are cheering, you know, for their, uh, you know, for, for the side that they that they feel um, a connection to. And there there is this this gap uh, where I think that there's a little bit of a, a sanitized experience of it on mm. Western platforms at this mm-hmm. point. 
And so I, I you know I empathize with the the prior caller's commentary on that. It's a very, very different experience over on Telegram. Yeah. I mean, it just seems very possible that the propaganda successes for Russians are, are I'm not seeing them because they're not targeted towards me. <laughs> they're not trying to get San Franciscans uh, who are likely not to uh, agree with Russian aims to sort of, they're, they're not trying to target me. This is where I think some of the coverage about um, the narrative that Russia's information operations collapsed is interesting because it assumes that the target audience right now is Western Westerners, right? And one of the things that was interesting in the unfolding of events was U.S. Um, the White House and U.S. intelligence putting out commentary saying we have intelligence that Russia is going to stage uh, a false flag attack as a pretext for uh, for an invasion of Ukraine. They, they actually got quite detailed. They alleged that there would be bodies. It would look like a missile strike uh, conducted with Turkish, you know, Turkish missiles to kind of bring a NATO element into the narrative. Um, there are that kind of kneecapped in some ways, assuming that that intelligence was accurate. And some of the images on Telegram, uh, again of uh, some, some fairly gruesome footage potentially corroborate a little bit of, of that claim. Um, it indicates that perhaps the collateral that they thought they'd have to work with and propagandizing to Western audiences was undercut. When we talk about propaganda, you know, as, um, as I think um, the prior caller mentioned, it's not only about persuasion, that's kind of a long game, but in the actual heat of battle, it's more about distraction. It's about undermining morale. It's about, you know, flooding the zone, creating a, a perception that it's too difficult to know what's true. That's not the kind of content that they would waste their energy targeting at Western audiences because we're just not there. Yep. And so there's a little bit of a difference in you know, in, in making sure that the audience and the platform are uh, achieving an objective. Exactly. We're talking about war in this age of social networks and information operations. We'll be back with more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal, and we are talking about war in this age of social networks and information operations with Rene DiResta, a researcher who's been studying these issues for a long time at Stanford Internet Observatory, as well as Sanan Arl, the director of the MIT Initiative on the Digital Economy and author of The Hype Machine. And we're loving hearing from you. You can get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. That's KQED Forum. You can email forum at kqed.org. Or you can give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Wanted to get to uh, some of these comments um, 
Kyler writes, the most recent media that struck me is the surrendered Russian soldier speaking with his mom on the phone. It's tragic how thousands of young Russians are being used as pawns to satisfy Putin's ego. feels like literally no one wants this war except for a handful of people. Can they all just turn on Putin? Noel tweets, what about the video of a Ukrainian girl confronting a, quote, Russian soldier on TikTok, which was actually a Palestinian girl confronting an Israeli soldier in 2012? We also confirmed that that is, in fact, uh, what it was. Um, And uh, Tony writes, Putin now risks creating a martyr in Zelensky and making himself the most hated man in the world. And a listener has a suggestion for the rest of us. If there's a political topic that I am unsure about, I watch three different news stations for about two straight days, read about 100 different people on Twitter and at least two or three news articles. Then I feel like I might have an idea uh, about what's going on. Somehow I don't think most people are doing that, but um, but uh, good on you for for that. Um, Renee, I wanted to ask uh, one more question before we go back to some calls. Um, we do know that Russian propaganda is landing in some places where sort of the, the ground has already been plowed for it. Uh, in particular, the anti-vax groups seem like there, there at least have been news stories and reports of anti-vax groups that have become sort of, uh, hotbeds of some Russian propaganda. Well, that is a what do you whole think? Lo- yeah. that's, a, that's also kind of a crazy long history there. But um, some of the stuff in the anti-vax telegram groups, uh, you know, initially the prevailing narrative within them was that this was a wag the dog situation, that no war was actually going to happen in, in the lead up to it. So prior to February uh, 24th, um, that this was all a, a construct to distract us from COVID and um, mandates and, you know, masking and CDC and what have you. Um, then as the war started, it was, re, you know, that that was kind of parlayed into, well, this is all part of the Great Reset. This is all a vast plan. Um, you know, the, the conspiratorial communities swirl around with so many different um, interpretations of uh, mm-hmm. of events on the ground, and they go and they find sites and uh, and examples to point to, and they read a whole lot uh, into things. And this has been happening for for many, many, many years. Um, so I, I don't think that they're really buying Russian war propaganda. It's very, very different stuff. It's mm-hmm. it's not narratives coming from Russia. It's conspiratorial narratives that are very, very old. That uh, that a wag the dog situation is happening mm-hmm. because suddenly people are being distracted from their preferred issue. I see. Thank you for that clarification. Appreciate that. Uh, Kevin in Redwood City, welcome to the show. Hi, great to be here. Hey, um, I couldn't help but feel listening to this that, and and I please don't take offense to this, but that this program itself is part of the problem is that after just having reread George Orwell's Time Machine, it feels like we're already there. I mean, we're sort of like Lena's drowning in the river and we're off on the side having our picnics, uh, you know, texting and typing on LinkedIn and chatting and tweeting while somebody's drowning in the river. And, and, and I think evidence for that is like, for example, Bill Nye, the science guy who collapses on stage and people pull out their phones and start taking pictures. Or George Floyd, while officers uh, and stand, people stand by while the guy's being choked to death by a police officer. So I really... Really, I'm scared not just about what's happening in Russia, but but the very fact that we have this program and that we're talking like this and think that we're actually doing something by participating in social media, that terrifies me even more. Okay, I'll take my answer. No, 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 Kevin, Kevin, stay with us. Kevin, stay stay with us. Um, You know, I think the question is the the world is intermediated in this way. We're not on the ground in Ukraine. We're not doing anything on the ground, but we are both experiencing 
this thing from afar, as well as people are having an influence on European politicians. Like this intermediated war, this other layer atop of the ground is actually part of of what's happening in the world. And I think I, I completely take your point that these are very distinct things and that the world of media is uh, built out of different stuff than the world of the war on the ground. But how would we approach this in a better way? I, I don't know. I, I think that's a great, that's a, that is the question, I think, because clearly while, even while we're talking right now, children are, 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 are taking their last breath from a vacuum bomb. Um, women are getting their legs blown off in, in, in apartment buildings right now while we're talking on the phone, while we're talking on this program. Um, uh, children, I've seen photos, are using automatic weapons against paratroopers while we're talking on this program. And so I, I think, you know, to bring it home, like every, I have kids, if we're on a schoolyard and we see one kid pummeling another kid and then the parents decide to just talk about it, oh, we're going to have to take his allowance away. Oh, and, and, and somebody else is taking photographs of it. This is how I feel what's going on. So I, I, I think you're asking the right question. You're asking the, the, the million-dollar question is, what should we be doing? But I do fear for that, that when we participate in social media that we think we did something and it actually sort of anesthetizes us. And so I, yeah. I, that's my fear. Yeah. Hey, thank you for that, Kevin. I appreciate the, the feedback. Let's go to Justin in San Rafael. Hi. Um, as I watch people like Sergey Lavrov speak at the UN, it had me wondering whether Russian propaganda is perhaps less effective in this conflict, just because Russia, Russia's credibility is so low right now. Uh, we've also seen pro-Russian influencers, if you will, uh, like former President Trump, Tucker Carlson, and so forth, speaking out in support of Russia and against Ukraine. And I was wondering what the experts thought that Russia might do to try to weaken Western opposition to the war. Yeah. Let's uh, start this one with Sanan. And I think what I kind of want to ask about this is you can't spin some of the things that happened very easily. And it feels like one of the things that sort of disrupted the operations was that the sort of official Russian position was that they weren't going to invade. They weren't going to invade. All these reporters are sitting there in Ukraine watching the invasion and that that in and of itself made the the rest of the information operations quite difficult? Well, I mean, to sort of combine both of the last two comments, um, you know, I think that the first caller is absolutely right, that the information war is not the story. The actual war is the story. But that actual war story is playing out over the information channels that we're all describing. And they are having an effect on the way people think, the way people vote at the UN, and the way uh, nations are responding. Here's my real fear as it relates to the way that Russia might counter the information narrative. We know that this is an attention economy, and we know that attention is incredibly scarce in this economy. That's why it's valuable. Russia's strategy from the beginning was to essentially have a nothing to see here strategy. Oh, we're not invading. Oh, it's not a big deal. This is all being blown out of proportion. 
And what we're seeing now is that the conflict isn't a one, two, three day conflict, but a prolonged conflict. So what I really fear is not that people will engage in talking about it, but that people will begin to lose interest and stop mm -hmm. talking about it. That actually frightens me more because we cannot allow what's happening in Ukraine, the actual war that was described so aptly uh, by the first caller in this series, uh, to just become a new normal or to enter a endemic phase mm -hmm. of the Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, because of the horrific outcomes that we're seeing. I think that that's probably the their most effective strategy now, Russia in the information war, because they have lost their credibility from the perspective of your second caller. Uh, there's really not much to convince the international community at this point that this is okay, uh, but, but they could sort of um, drown this into uh, a lack of interest over a long period of time. And, uh, and I'm speaking of the, the information war, certainly not of the nation states, but of the uh, interest of citizens in Russia and Ukraine and in the world, certainly not Ukraine, but in the world about speaking about it and speaking up about it and demanding action about it. Right. Can, it, can the citizens of these democracies that have so many options for what they're going to pay attention to can they keep their minds focused on this and their leaders, therefore, also focused on this? Uh, let's bring in um, Raza from San Carlos. Welcome. Oh, thank you. Thank you for taking my call. I was, uh, I really am enjoying this show. I think it's a very, very important topic to talk about the propaganda. And yes, we are talking about uh, the social media. <clears throat> but what I wanted to remind people, especially the researchers here, that, you know, comparatively speaking, I have uh, heard the media coverage of the previous wars that we were on the, on the other side, such as Iraq, Afghanistan war. And then, you know, just one very uh, sharp point here is when we vetoed UN resolution at the Security Council, the coverage in this country was 180 degrees different. When the whole world voted uh, in the General Assembly against that veto, we covered it 180 degrees different. Mm. Even on this show, you guys are talking about these pariah countries, three or four of them. In previous times when we vetoed Palestine-Israeli wars, we didn't call us pariah countries. So I think the propaganda and the way you you uh, frame your um, uh, frame the news, it's not always truth. And I think finding the truth is become million times harder in the in the social media era than it was during the regular uh, cable TV channel. Yeah. That's my that's hey, my point. Hey, Raza, I appreciate that, and I think you know, Renee, I want to toss this one to you. I think. These these issues of framing U.S. actions, this is playing out on social media a lot right now, framing U.S. actions or NATO actions um, versus what's happening in, in Russia right now is like one of the sort of key battlegrounds and how people are sort of evaluating what's happening right now. 
Well, I think that I think that the caller is uh, is exactly you know, he's he's describing um, one of the core challenges here that Sinan uh, alluded to also, which is that there's framing a narrative, right? And then there is there which have always existed. There's always been framing. There's always been narrative. There's always been propaganda. Um, but in the age of social media, the participatory dynamics mean that large audiences can make certain things. Uh, reach more people, right? That there certain um, types of of content can be more heavily resonant. I think that one of the key challenges we're seeing is this question of winning the war is in the information war is so much about winning the attention and there the dynamic of um, you know different communities online kind of battling it out to get their version of events their frame to be the dominant frame mm-hmm. is something that we see across all issues all politics at this point mm-hmm. nearly all countries and that is the kind of added complexity layer when we have now instead of just this top down narrative coming from media which again has always used frames and you know been cozy with um you know some regime or another uh intersecting with the grassroots galvanized public that also itself feels as if it has a, a direct hand in participation and narrative creation. Yeah. I mean, Renee, this is something you have been studying, right? So is this something that is just, this is the new state of play. This is reality now. And these battles over framing and legitimacy of narratives going on in social media, bubbling up from the bottom and then sort of uh, being sort of both amplified and, and, and used by media as well. Like, this is just the reality now. There's no yep. different or better way to work with these networks in our current information terrain. Well, I don't know that I would add the last part. Is it the is it the new normal right now? Yes. Is the participatory dynamic here to stay, you know, for the for, for, for the entirety of the future? Yes. Um, are there ways to do it better? I would argue the answer to that is also yes. <laughs> and that's because the one thing that we haven't really gotten into, because this is not a conversation about social media, is that when information is curated for you, when it's curated algorithmically, when uh, platform recommendation engines nudge people into groups and communities and assemble the networks that the information cascades along, and Sinan's book uh, really deals with this in, uh, in great detail, Um, There are ways to rethink that curation, to rethink the assemblage of those networks, um, potentially towards being less about sensationalism, uh, less about this kind of constant roiling sense that we're all competing for attention uh, in this in this, you know, this kind of small uh, arena. Uh, And there potentially are ways to design better platforms that, you know, that minimize some of the kind of worst aspects uh, of the attention grab dynamic. Mm-hmm. A couple of comments um, to read. Lena writes, photos of President Zelensky and his family were so emotionally striking. They look like family friends we made through preschool. But as a person of color in the U.S., I note my implicit bias shared by the media that white Europeans are like, quote unquote, us versus darker skinned people from lower income countries. Gregory also writes, of course, we all love Ukrainians today, but remember how the entire U.S. press was co-opted to support the illegal and tragic invasion of Iraq, which killed a million people and ended up destroying the Middle East. Uh, Wanted to ask Sanan what you're looking for looking ahead. Like what what are what are the signs you're looking for that things might be changing in this sort of information space? Well, I mean, I think that uh, the main thing that I'm looking at is the unfolding of the war itself. 
the information space is not something that uh, it's not the tail that wags the dog in a sense. It can sort of guide uh, and frame and uh, maybe uh, motivate in one direction or the other. Um, but at the end of the day, the, the war that's going on on the ground is the source in a sense of all the content, um, whether it is uh, sort of edited and changed and so on or not, it is also the, um, the outcome that matters uh, at the end of the day. It is the thing upon which the information is, um, is operating, is, is trying to affect in one direction or the other. And so, um, you know, the, the things that, that are on the top of my mind right now are the very, very tricky questions of how does the international community intervene to stop or slow the uh, atrocities that are happening in Ukraine without triggering a wider conflict that spills over the borders of Ukraine to Poland, Romania, and other parts of the world. My family is situated nearby in Turkey, um, mm -hmm. you know, not in direct harm's way currently, obviously, um, but it is troubling to see that region being destabilized. Mm -hmm. The refugees are, you know, will be a million soon and will be, by some estimates, two to three million. That is going to be a years-long crisis in the making that is going to create tremendous hardship in addition to the many people that are being killed on the ground. And so uh, in, in, in line with some of the callers, I'm focused on the war itself uh, and then the information war second. We've been talking about war in this age of social networks and information operations with Sanan Arl, director of the MIT Initiative on the Digital Economy, and Renee DeResta, research manager at the Stanford Internet Observatory. Thank you both for joining us. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. 
Soul to Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Soul to Story are available now.